Our scripture reading this morning uh, comes from the book of Luke. We're in chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the accounts of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to, you to the riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You may be seated. All right, guys, good morning. Welcome to Stonehouse Church. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are almost done walking through the book of Luke. Um, We really want together as a church to journey through the scriptures, uh, to seek to not just know about God, but to know God, Uh, to seek not only to know about the person and the work of Jesus, but to actually know Jesus. Um, And this is, in our view of things, a lifelong journey that will never, ever reach its fullness until we stop living in this world and start living in the perfect view of God. Um, And so while we do this journey, uh, we have a lot of ground to cover, both in the book and also in our experience, our education, our knowledge, and our own growth. Um, And so, for us, the book of Luke has been a journey in discovering Luke's perspective, which was gained by interviewing a lot of people um, and and, and trying to see what Luke is saying differently or in a different way or with different particulars than Matthew and Mark and John. That's why we've called this series The Extent of Grace because we've looked at kind of Luke's purpose in writing. And Luke's purpose in writing is to show us how far-reaching the good news of the gospel actually is. 
Okay, that's one thing that sets Luke's work apart from Matthew and Mark um, and John. He doesn't preach a different gospel at all. He doesn't preach a different Jesus at all. He simply tries to clarify with how far reaching the audience was and the different types of people um, and the different types of topics that Jesus engages in. He tries to just simply show how this gospel goes way further than we think way further than we think. Um, and we kind of went about this journey in a unique way. We, m- most of the time, we just walk through books of the Bible because we want to just see them in their totality. This book, we've kind of jumped around because we've been doing only the Luke unique content. So that means we've only been doing the parts that are in Luke only. Um, and that's been good in that it's shown us kind of this extent of grace, but it's also been a bit damaging in that we've lost some of the flow of Luke's gospel um, because as he says in chapter one, he goes about writing his book um, in, in an attempt to display an orderly um, account of the life of Jesus. Um, so both yay and nay to what we've done, right? Like in a way we've kind of disassembled Luke's actual intent and in another way we've sort of enhanced Luke's intent um, by looking at what's unique about him. So we need to kind of pull back into the orderly account today in order to see chapter 16 rightly. Okay, we began this sermon series by looking at a lot of parables. That's kind of where we started um, because Luke had a ton of unique parables, so we looked at those. Um, And then we kind of pulled out of the parables and looked at the whole book of Luke uh, together and started going through the unique passages in time sequence to walk us toward uh, the the Passion Week in Jerusalem, right, which concluded with Jesus being killed um, and we looked at the, the sayings of Jesus on the cross right up to Easter. And then after Easter, we looked at Jesus talking after the resurrection. And last week, you saw um, Jesus, one of his appearance to the, to the disciples. So um, that's kind of what we did. Now we have only two passages left that are unique to Luke. And so we've got to back up into Luke chapter 16, um, which is, is going to be challenging in two, for two reasons. Number one, we've been looking at things um, in kind of more of the timeline way, and now we have to jump back into the middle of that timeline. And then the, the second challenge is, and this is according to every like commentator and scholar that I read this week, um, this is the hardest parable that Jesus tells, right? Like you probably, you were just listening to it and you're just kind of, what was that? <laughs> that was weird, right? Like this parable is super different. Um, and, it, and it presents a lot of challenges for us um, as we seek to decipher it. Um, and it's funny because it comes after uh, one of the most famous chapters filled with some of the most famous and easy to understand parables in the book of Luke, right? So if you've turned back with me in your Bible or you've got an app, you look at Luke chapter 15, we had the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then the parable, the parable of the prodigal son, right? Those are hallmark parables, Right? Like if, if, you've, if you've never understood the message of Jesus and somebody would try to explain it to you with one succinct story, you'd probably choose the parable of the sons as one of the things. Like, okay, this, right? This is the guy. It's so uh, succinct and so, so beautifully presents to us um, the grace of God towards those who don't deserve it um, and, and kind of the, 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 the fierceness of God to those who think they deserve right? Like it's that really confrontational gospel story um, that a lot of us can, can understand. And then we jump into Luke 16 and we see this parable of the dishonest manager or the crafty steward, as some people call it. And it just seems like 
it just seems like the story doesn't belong. All right, so we've got uh, a lot of work to do in order to get into this. And as we do, we need to remind ourselves of what parables are for. Okay, we need to remember, and like, like I said, we, we want to journey through the scriptures. Um, and as we journey through the scriptures, we have to pay attention to the different ways that God reveals himself in the different kinds of things that are written in the scriptures. Not all of the scriptures should be read the same way. Okay? Not every single book is a story about a thing that happened in history that we can easily learn a lesson from. Some of scripture is poetry. Some of it is song. Some of it is events. Some of it is prophecy. Um, there's, there's a lot of different things in scripture, and so we have to read them according to their type and in um, their place. And so we have to read uh, this parable as a parable. Okay, we have to remember what parables are for. So if you back up with me all the way to um, Luke 8, <clears throat> which we talked about when we were first um, looking at the parables, in Luke 8, Jesus tells the disciples what parables are for. Um, and he says this. Um, verse 10 when the disciples, or verse 9 in chapter 8, when the disciples asked him what the parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. What does that mean? That means parables do two things. Parables reveal, and parables conceal. Okay? Um, they're, they have the capacity to enlighten our minds to the truth of God, but they also have the capacity to hide from us the truth of God. Okay? And Jesus says to those who have eyes but don't see and ears but don't hear, this is a, a hearkening back to Isaiah, one of the prophets in the Old Testament who's prophesying about the future things, the events that are about to befall um, Israel. And God tells Isaiah, you're going to go preach to my people, and no one's going to listen to you. They've all got black, cold, stone hearts, plugged up ears, and blind eyes. So you're going to preach, and no one's going to listen. Through you, I'm going to warn them of a disaster that is to come, and not a single one of them will repent, so therefore the disaster will come. Right? It's, a, it's kind of a, a hearkening back to that reality that unless God opens our hearts to hear what he's saying, we won't hear it, okay? which puts us in two places. Number one, desperate, <laughs> and number two, extremely dependent upon the Spirit of the Lord to help us learn something that could be hidden if he doesn't help us, right? So daunting task before us today. Um, I'm scared as I'll get out. Um, and that's why I've quoted, I'm quoting a bunch of people today to make sure we get this thing right. So let's pray, and then, actually, I'm going to read this again because this is, because it's so confusing, I hope that we get more and more familiar with it and let it wash over us, and then we will pray. So Luke 16, are you nervous? I'm nervous. Here we go. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him, and he said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So 
Summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little also uh, is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Let's pray. Father, your word is eternal. It is glorious. It is our guide. It is your revelation of yourself to us so that we might not know just things about you, but that we might actually come and know you. You, in your word, reveal your character and your nature and your heart and your ways to your people. And we, as your people, live in the midst of a place that, do not know, that does not know your character, that does not know your heart, that does not know your ways, that does not know your nature. We are desperate to know you. We are desperate to see what is true, what is more true about the spiritual world that is being shown to us through so many different pictures here in this earthly world. And that's why it can sometimes get so confusing. Because all we typically have eyes to see is what's before us. And so we beg you, would you, through this parable and through your Holy Spirit's help, give us eyes to see behind or underneath or above even this world. To see that which is more glorious, that which is more lasting, that which is eternal, that which is true, that which is good, that which is glorious, that which lasts forever, that we might see the kingdom of heaven and understand how to live rightly with the things we have in this world so that we might display your wisdom, display your glory, and put on a pedestal the person and the work of Jesus for not just ourselves, but the whole world to see. God, we're desperate for this. It's, it's a tough task this morning, so I pray you'd please help me, uh, that you'd open my mouth in the right ways and shut it if I have anything wrong to say. God, that you would open our ears to hear you through your word today, um, that we would see this, not so that we can boast about how we know a parable, um, but so that we can actually be wise unto the ways of God uh, and live accordingly to your glory. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, so chapter 16, um, again, to try to understand things kind of more in the, in the line of what Luke is doing. Chapter 16 and verse 1 start us in a chunk of scripture that goes into about the middle of chapter 18. Um, and in this section, Luke is bringing some of the teaching of Jesus to bear on two groups of people, the disciples and the Pharisees. Okay, and he's, you'll see, if you, if you sit down later and look at Luke 16 and 17 and some of 18, you'll see again and again, it'll say, Jesus said to the disciples, 
He said to the Pharisees. He said to the disciples. He said to the Pharisees. Okay? So Jesus is talking to two different groups of people. He's not considering Pharisees followers. Okay? He's also not considering followers Pharisees. He he sees a distinction in these two groups. Okay? Uh, This parable, Luke 16, he says it to the disciples. Okay? He tells the disciples this parable. And then in verse 14, we see the Pharisees' reaction to that. And so then Jesus says something to the Pharisees, okay? So as we look at this parable, we first have to look at what is Jesus saying to his disciples and remember who are among the disciples, right? Here's who's among the disciples. Luke chapter 15, verse 1, it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Part of the point of Luke chapter 15 is to show that Jesus welcomes tax collectors and sinners. And we talked about this probably months ago, right? Tax collectors are vile, just traitors that a typical Jewish person hated, right? And sinners are a class of people that don't qualify for kind of the, the, the elite religious group in all of their rights, okay? So Jesus is telling this parable to a bunch of crooked people who've been saved by grace, who've been captured by the message of Jesus, and a bunch of broken people who've been pushed aside to the margins of society who also are totally enamored with the teaching of Jesus. Okay, so it's important to understand disciples doesn't mean good little boys and girls who follow all the rules, right? Jesus is telling this story to people who used to be crooked and who are starting to figure out how to live right according to Christ and his values. People who were cast aside from the systems of the world, either because of their sickness or their poverty or their race or their gender or their age. Suddenly, they've been captured by this message of Jesus and then Jesus tells them this parable, right? So it matters significantly who Jesus is talking to uh, as we try to discern what Jesus is talking about, okay? And then he tells this parable, which is, Super weird, right? So there's a rich guy. This rich guy has a steward that he's placed over his household, okay? Sometimes when you read it, you think the the manager is above the rich man. No, he's not. The, The manager's below the rich man, okay? Rich man, huge, huge uh, estate, okay? Maybe vineyards, maybe, um, maybe, uh, fig groves, uh, who knows? Okay, some kind of big estate. He's rich, wealthy, he has lots of servants, tons of money. He's invoicing and, you know, creating relationships with vendors. I mean, like, he's just, he's got an enterprise, okay? Under that rich man is a manager. And the manager is messing with things, okay? News comes to the rich man that the manager is messing with things, okay? So the manager is messing with things so significantly that the community that he is in is aware of his meddling, okay? And is so aware of it and sees how bad it is to the point where they think they should tell the rich guy, okay? This is significant, what's going on, okay? This guy is seriously blowing it. The community around sees how bad he's blowing it to the point that they say, man, the boss should know. So the boss finds out, and he fires the guy. He's like, show me the books. You're done for. Okay? Manager panics. Okay, what am I going to do? Okay? The manager panics. And he thinks to himself, well, I 
I can't go dig. I'm as skinny as Derek. Like, that's not going to go well for me, okay? I'm, I, I can't do manual labor. I'm going to break. Uh, and also like Derek, I'm too arrogant, so I'm not going to beg. Like, I can't dig and I can't beg. How am I going to live after I've been removed from my post? How am I going to put food in my stomach? How am I going to have a, a roof over my head? How? How? Right? I know. I know. Here's what I'll do. I'm going to go to all the people that owe my master money, and I'm going to be their hero. I'm going to be their hero. I'm going to make them so thankful for me that when I'm done with this job, I can go live with them. That's what he thinks. Okay? So, hey, what do you owe the master? Uh, a bunch of oil? Okay, cut it in half. What do you owe the master? A bunch of wheat? Okay, drop it to 80%. Right? Like, and, and kind of the story is told in a way where he probably did that a dozen times. Okay, what do you owe my master? A bunch of grain. Okay, cool, cut it in half. What do you owe my master? Some sheep. Okay, just two. What do you owe my master? A bunch of chicken. Okay, nothing, you know. He goes and he, he, he does it so that the community that had seen him as a fraud now sees him as an ally to the point where eventually they'll welcome him into their house, okay? Maybe he's thinking, I could get a job with one of them when this job is done, and then I'll be secure so that I don't have to dig or beg, right? So, so he's thinking about that. And then in verse 8, the first couple words in the parable, Jesus says, the rich man comes to the manager and praises him for his shrewdness. Okay? Dude's still fired, but the rich man's like, you're snarky. You're, you're witty. That's some creative stuff. Right? It's very weird. Because he's continued to deal improperly, but he's done so in a way as to secure himself into the future. And then Jesus says something very interesting. He says, the sons of this world, this is the second half of verse 8, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Okay, so we have to unpack these verses here before we can fully understand what Jesus is getting to with the verses afterward. So a couple things we need to look at. Number one, unrighteous wealth. Number two, make friends. And then number three, eternal dwellings. So unrighteous wealth in this passage has to do with money or possessions or anything of value according to this world. Okay? So Jesus, he, the, the word that they use here is mammon, which is a word that, that is commonly interpreted as riches or wealth. Uh, mammon just is simply a word that refers to the stuff of this earth that's going to eventually go away, okay? The stuff here on our planet that is utterly valued, that on the other side of the grave will have no value at all, okay? That's like the whole, you can't take it with you. Like that's what we're talking, so yes, we're talking about money, okay? Yes, we are talking about dollars and cents, bank accounts and retirement funds. And yes, we are talking about houses. And yes, we are talking about cars and clothes 
And yes, we are talking about time and resources and energy. We're talking about anything that has value in this world. Okay, That's what is kind of the subject here when it comes to the term unrighteous wealth that Jesus uses here in Luke 16. So the larger point of these teachings is that the way we handle our worldly wealth is a matter of eternal significance, okay? And we see that in this command where Jesus says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, you may be received into the eternal dwellings. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, listen, using mammon rightly here actually matters there, okay? Now, he tells a parable which is completely about an earthly scenario to help reveal a greater truth about an eternal reality, okay? What we have to be careful with is that we don't translate everything in the parable to be a, a, a heavenly value or virtue, okay? The dishonesty in the parable does not belong in the kingdom of heaven. The mismanagement of your job does not belong in the kingdom of heaven, okay? Conniving and, and, and being sneaky and lying and being dishonest, those things do not belong in the kingdom of heaven, okay? So that's where we have to be careful about the parable and read it as a parable and understand the applications correctly, okay? A lot of what's in the parable is to be despised and even kind of laughed at, right? Some of you, when Nathan read, were kind of like... Pfft. Because it's, it's, some, it's laughable on some level. And so Jesus isn't telling us the parable to say, this is what God's like, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like, this is what disciples of Jesus should be like. Okay, that's not, what he's doing is revealing a greater truth, and that is what you do with your stuff now will matter forever. And that is a colossal truth that the disciples at the time did not fully understand and in particular, we see that toward the end of the passage, the, the Pharisees actually ridiculed it, okay? The truth that what you do with mammon matters in eternal ways, that truth was laughable to the Pharisees. It was laughable, and we'll see why in a minute. So Jesus says, make friends. It sounds like Jesus is saying, gain a bunch of friends with your money so that you can live in their eternal house, Okay? Got to be careful with that too, okay? What Jesus is trying to say here, it's not like an earthly person can welcome you into heaven. We know that's not true because of the Bible, <laughs> okay? So I'm not trying to put Stephen in my debt so that when Stephen and Brittany get their mansion in heaven, I can live in the shed. That, that's not what I'm trying to do. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, don't buddy up with Mike, you know, and snuggle yourself in neatly so that when he sees Jesus, he remembers you. That's not, okay, we've got to be careful. What Jesus is saying is that there is a kingdom principle operating with your money that will put you in the company of those whom Jesus is welcoming into heaven. Okay. There is a way to operate with your mammon according to God's eternal purposes that will put you in a group of people that by grace, through faith, God is already welcoming to heaven you're going to become the kind of person that gets a glad welcome to heaven because of the familiarity of which you, the familiar way with which you handle your funds and your resources and your possessions, okay? So 
eventually on the other side, whatever the other side looks like. We know really that the other side is heaven coming to earth, not us going to heaven. That's a longer story. Anyways, when everything's all fixed, okay, when stuff is right, when pain is gone, when tears are over, when poverty is eradicated, when arrogant, pride, rich people don't exist anymore, okay, when the broken systems of tricking the banking world to get more power and to push other people, when all that stuff is gone, we'll finally see rightly. We'll go, oh, this is what wealth means. This is what riches are. It's God loving and knowing us and welcoming us no matter who we are. It's that I didn't own anything, but he owned everything, and he gave me some of it to enjoy and to steward. It's a, it's a proper view of the mammon of this world. I don't have it now. You don't have it now. But one day when you're in the presence of Jesus, you will see this world rightly, and you will look at mammon, and you will go, oh, oh. That's why God gave me that brain to do that job to earn that money. Oh, that's why God put me in that family to teach me those things so that I could manage my wealth that way. Oh, that's why when I struggled to get ahead in this world, that's why I felt that way. Oh, that's why when I looked at the poor, I felt that way. Oh, I get it. It's because the way God looks at mammon is completely different than I looked at mammon for the 73.6 years of my life. It's all different at that moment in time. When you see it all rightly, you will look to your left and you will look to your right and you will celebrate the fact that others learned in this life how to operate according to those principles. You'll be friends. You'll be buddies. You'll together celebrate God's goodness at how he graciously gave you things and then used those things to help you grow in an understanding of who he really is. So, live with your mammon in a way that is mindful of that future and seek, while you have mammon, to use it in a way that God says it ought to be used not in a way that the world says it ought to be used, okay? That's the point of the parable. One day, we will live in the company of those who enjoy God forever and know what the stuff of this world was really for, okay? Which is a truth that, let's just be honest, it escapes us on the daily, does it not? It is so hard to grasp. And that's why Jesus expands more fully. I want to say something. Michael Wilcox says this about the, the statements in verses 8 and 9. He says, although these things, your property, ability, time, belong to this life only, says Jesus, yet what will happen to you then when you pass into that life will depend on what you are doing with them here and now. Make sure that, you use, that your use of them brings you into a fellowship of friends which will survive beyond death, okay? Make sure your use of mammon here pulls you into that greater company of people who understand what it's really for and what it's really about. Okay, then Jesus expands, verses 10 through 13. And these are a little more popular and probably a little bit seemingly more easy to understand. 
So let's dig in. It says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you, entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. All right, so here's where Jesus makes some really important applications. And we need to be careful as we make these applications that we understand that verse 13 is, is central here to what Jesus is getting at. Okay? Jesus says, no servant can have two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So we, we have to pull that into the middle of our understanding here in order to apply everything else, because this is like the capital T, the, uh, the point. Um, and the, the money that Jesus uses at the end of the verse there is mammon again. It's mammon. So again, we're talking about possessions, um, anything in this world that has value. Okay, mammon. So, what Jesus helps us to see here is that if we dedicate our life to the service of worldly wealth, if we dedicate ourselves to mammon, um, then we cannot dedicate our life to the service of God. Okay? Cannot is a hinge word. If you are devoted to serving mammon, you cannot be devoted to serving God. Not just if you're devoted to serving it, you probably won't, or more than likely you're not going to be able to. It's literally cannot. It is one or the other. It is grab hold of one and let go of the other. Love one, as he says, and hate the other. Okay, serve one and despise the other. It's, it's, it's one or the other here. And what we have to do is apply that point over and above when we apply verses 10 through 12, okay? Because sometimes we can look at verses 10 to 12, which says be faithful in a little, right? Be, be a proper steward of somebody else's stuff, right? Handle your money on earth right. Like, that's how we often see those things, and those are true. But what sometimes we do with that application is pull in worldly wisdom, okay, and operate with our mammon according to worldly wisdom, and then call that faithfulness to God, okay? Now, this is super nuanced, super, super nuanced, because Scripture tells us to be wise, okay? Proverbs is full of lessons about handling our money right, okay? Um, including things like, a fool doesn't save for his kids, the Bible says that. A fool doesn't save for his kids. Okay, the Bible says that. So that is a, an eternal principle. That is one of God's values. Okay. But what this world tells you about saving for your kids has a completely different center and a completely different hope than that which God says to operate in that principle. Right? The world would tell you, in some ways, just to go bonkers with that. 
what that means is that you have to have enough for this type of retirement and they have to have enough for that type of college or this type of future endeavor. You know, like that's the kind of thing that the worldly wisdom can pull us into and we can confuse the two and start to say, okay, well, faithfulness then means being able to buy a retirement home and a beach home and give my kids money for college and their first house. That's what God means when he says here in verse 10 to be faithful with a little. And I would argue that's incorrect. I would argue that what God is more after is faithfully operating with our mammon according to the principles of eternity. And those principles have more to do with serving others and being generous and not being identified by our wealth and even building the kingdom of heaven than it does with making sure our kids have a good life after us. Okay? Not ignoring the fact that we should, yes, indeed, save for our children, but prioritizing the kingdom priorities, which is generosity and others and not being identified by our wealth and making sure that we invest in the kingdom of heaven. Okay? So we have to be really, like, we have to be really nuanced with this because I've heard some people take verses 10, 11, and 12 and champion, like, heroic investment advice, right? You take this opportunity and absolutely idolize a high standard of retirement living and totally despise anyone that would ever think they need their Social Security. I've heard that. It's out there. And it's Christians who do that, and we have to be really, really careful. Is God saying, don't invest? No! Not at all. The standard by which we measure those investments, the standard by which we measure that wisdom, however, should be God's standard, not this world's standard. So we have to let verse 13 be the top verse that we evaluate verse 10, 11, and 12 underneath. Because if... We start to do wisely or be faithful with the money that we have according to the wisdom of this world, then what we're actually going to end up doing is serving money. And Jesus is clear, you can't serve that and God. Okay? Again, super nuanced. Right? We can't just put like percentages on this thing and smack a label on it and be like, good, I'm good, I'm good. Right, we have to evaluate fairly regularly what we are doing with our mammon. Okay? And evaluate it not just based on earthly principles of return, <laughs> but based on heavenly principles of return. Right? So that can be really, really tough. And listen, Mike McKinley says this, the miser, the workaholic, the overspender, and the person who spends a great portion of their time worrying about their finances, each lives in service to unrighteous wealth. Okay? So just to break that up, somebody who hoards everything and spends as little as possible might view that as being faithful. Okay? But what it might be is worship. What it might be is a misplaced trust in stuff rather than faith in God. Okay, we have to be careful there. Some people would look at verse 10 and say the appropriate application of verse 10, being faithful with the little I had, is to, to hoard it, to shove it under the mattress and not spend a dime. That's how I be faithful. Or put it all in the bank and make sure 
piles up my interest, right? That's what it means to be faithful. While the scriptures say, no, actually generosity is what it means to be faithful. Building your budget with other people in mind is what it means to be faithful. Uh, miser and generous don't compute that diametrically opposed to one another, right? So we have to be careful what, what uh, principles we're operating in. A workaholic, right? Somebody who's compulsively working long and hard hours as a slave to their job because that's what gives them identity and that's what assures their future security. That kind of person might say that's faithful. They might say I'm being a steward of what God gave me, right? Or the principles of heaven might be saying, well, yeah, you're actually worshiping your identity. You're, you're seeking to justify your existence with a title or an achievement. So we have to be careful that we're not serving mammon rather than God. Somebody who lusts after possessions that money can buy and just keeps going to get them, overspending to the point of racking themselves even with undue debts, right? That type of... Life is not a faithful life. It's a life of seeking comfort and seeking achievement and seeking just the identity and the value of this world. Even somebody who worries and sweats and obsesses over every single penny. Some of these things are not reflecting a greater reality in the way we value Mammon. And all of these things are living lives with a different Lord than Jesus. In verse 13, the Greek word kyrios is used for masters. You can't serve two kyrios. Kyrios is a Greek term that's used more than 600 times in the New Testament to refer to God. And so Jesus pits against one another service of God and service of mammon. So then what does it mean to be faithful with a little? Right? How do we apply verses 10 through 11? What does it mean to be faithful with that which is another? What does it mean to be honest with what we have now? What does it mean to properly steward what Jesus calls unrighteous wealth or mammon? And I think what it means is to use these worldly possessions in a way that is consistent with a transformed spiritual life. That's really what Jesus is kind of getting at when he says that all of your use of your stuff matters for eternity. Okay, these are not two separate compartments, your spiritual life and then your money life, right? Your prayer life and then your estate life. These aren't separated things. Jesus pulls these things together. And so to be faithful means to hold loosely to our money as if it actually does belong to God and then look to his wisdom, look to his kingdom, look to his principles as to how to let him give us the opportunity to use things in a way to honor him. It means to know about that which you own without the need to be defined by it. It's okay to know how much you have. It's okay to know the value of your home. It's okay to know what you spent on your things and how much interest you're accruing. 
What's not okay is defining yourself by those things. What, what is revealed in that definition is that you're loving that rather than loving God. You're letting all those... And listen, that can happen if you're rich or if you're poor. That can happen if you're kind of behind the eight ball or if you've got a head start on life. It can happen both ways. You can be identified by those numbers or you can be identified by what God says, that you're a child of the king. And that those things are not a reflection of the depth of your heart. They're not a reflection of God's choosing to love you or not love you. So we have to be careful with that as well. To be faithful with our mammon means to be honest, no matter what. It means to be content. Paul says godliness with contentment is great gain. content, not always striving, not always seeking to keep up with Joneses, whoever they are, but to be content. To be faithful means to be of service to others, and to be faithful means to advance the kingdom with all that we have in this life. It means to view this mammon, this unrighteous wealth, these worldly things, it means to view them in the way that God does. Not with greed and envy and worry and strife in our hearts, but with gratitude, humility, openness, and the mind of a steward. Look, if all that you think and do when it comes to managing resources, if all that you think and do terminates here, Jesus is saying, then you're doing it wrong. If the only stuff you consider when planning and evaluating and valuing your money, if the only stuff that enters your mind is, what will I get back here on earth? Then you've missed what God's given you that stuff for. Okay? He's given it to us to reveal some greater reality that now, here and now, we can actually invest in heaven. What? Again, the Pharisees mocked this idea. So if you're only aiming at things in this life, then you're missing the point. If your accounting only includes the expectation of earthly returns, you aren't being faithful. If you cannot look at where your money goes or look at how your stuff is used, or look at where your time is spent and see an investment in God's eternal kingdom, then you may be serving mammon. Okay? Ah, this is so hard, I know. But we need the reminder to look again at what we have in our hands. Okay? And to do it fairly regularly. And to evaluate, are all my investments... Right? And I'm not just talking about banking. I'm talking about spending time, spending money, spending energy, all these things. Are all my investments wrapped up in this life that is ending soon? In the parable, Jesus says, when it's gone. Okay? When it's gone. Whether it goes because of market fluctuation, whether it goes because you're 
son or daughter is stupid with it, <laughs> whether it goes because you're stupid, whether it goes because somebody steals it, whether it goes because you die one way or another, it's going, 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 gone. If all we're aiming at is temporary, then we're missing what God has given us mammon for. Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God, and you cannot serve money. And listen, we have to hit this point. Jesus doesn't want your money. The preacher doesn't want your... The church isn't after your money. In every single place where Jesus talks about money... He talks about your heart. Jesus wants your heart. He wants your love. He wants your trust. He wants your faith. He wants your investment. Just like we sang, he wants you to hang it all on him. And so long as we're banking on mammon, we can't love him. We can't. Okay? Jesus is after your affection, not your wallet. And where your heart is, there your treasure will be. Right? I remember the bachelor days. Peanut butter, jelly, Totino's pizza rolls and honey nut Cheerios. And just because this was my default, the way I was trained, whatever, I remember not caring about what I spent on anything else. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. I had so much extra that I didn't even have to pay attention. Some of you are like ready to stone me. You're like, excuse you? If you have so much extra, that all goes in the bank, son. It's like, okay, yep. We both see how we worship the wrong way. You're mad at me because I spent it. I'm kind of mad at me because I spent it. But, right, you're mad at me because I spent it because your God is saving it, right? If you stored it all the way, I'd be mad at you for storing it all the way and not enjoying some of it. Why? Because my God is enjoying it. Okay, right? Ah, hypocrites. I'm included, right? But I remember that. I remember that. It was the first real job I ever had in my life. I was living in a 110-year-old house that the church owned, paying them hardly anything in rent. I was buying cereal, Totino's pizza rolls, bread, and PB&J. It's it. I'm like, Psh, whatever else I want, right? Just crazy. But then I had to buy this thing that I had to put on this finger on this girl. <laughs> and everything changed, right? Because I was an idiot and I didn't have it already, right? Okay, you investment people that are chiding me because I didn't store it away, you're right. I should have just had the cash. Didn't. So I go to Hellsberg Diamonds, sign up for more plastic, and then I stare this bill in the face. 
And I go, this thing's got to be gone. This thing, this is, I got I to gotta pay for this now. This girl is changing everything. She's going to live with me. <laughs> like, together, all the time. What? She's changing everything. I got I to gotta button down the hatches, man. It is time. I got to put some money toward, the, I got to eradicate this bill. Okay, I got to, we got a wedding. Oh my gosh, we got to pay for that. I've got to, this, she can't live in a 110-year-old house with the windows rattling and the stuff's falling apart. Like, and my hops, my roommate who leaves crusted toast in his couch, like, she can't live there. We got to live somewhere else. Like, everything changed when I fell in love. I was already in love with her, but when it became real, when she was going to be my wife, Right? The affection changed everything. So when you fall in love with Jesus who values other people more than himself to the point that he dies on a cross for them, man, you're going to do something different with your money so that you can serve people that Jesus died for. He wants your heart where your heart is, your mammon will follow, right? So ultimately, the principle here is not, hey, change all these things and get to heaven, right? Like, we have to remind ourselves of the gospel. That's never the story. Get this right, get this right, get this right, then you'll be good enough to come into heaven. Jesus is not saying, get this right with your earthly possessions. Spend here, don't spend there. Save there, don't save there. Do this, don't do that, and then you'll get into heaven. Heck no, you're getting to heaven on grace and grace alone. The fact that Jesus loved you so much that he gave up eternal riches to serve a pauper like me should change my heart in such a way as to make me say, man, his value system should govern everything about me. This kingdom is the kingdom and if I have to love only one Lord, I'm going to choose the one who died for me, who set me free instead of shackled me in chains, the one who said, no matter what kind of mistakes you've made, I'm welcoming you into my household, right? Money doesn't make that kind of promise to me. The value of possessions on this world don't make that kind of promise to me. They chain me up and oblige me, burden me. But when the freedom of one who is loved so extravagantly like Jesus enters into my heart, I suddenly value the whole world differently. And listen, the Pharisees ridiculed Jesus for this thought. They ridiculed Jesus because Jesus' idea of how to faithfully manage mammon was connected to love. They went, <laughs> they mocked him for that idea. They're like, dude, so sideways. Can you believe? Right? Because here's the Pharisees' world. Verse 14, lovers of money. Lovers of money. The Pharisees' life, so long as they were living in view of the temple, was a life of strict adherence to religious principles, high piety, particular festivals and feasts, 
faithfulness in sacrifices, following the rules of Moses impeccably. That's how they lived in view of the temple. Okay? This part of their life that Jesus is attacking here is how they lived in view of the bank. They were conniving. They were dishonest. They pressed down on poor people to make money for themselves. Okay? They did not even think of other people when it came to balancing their checkbooks. Their life, when lived in view of the bank, was completely void of any of God's values. And they thought they were the ones that would inherit the kingdom of heaven. They said, Jesus, you're a fool for thinking that my spiritual life has anything to do with my material wealth. What an idiot. They said to Jesus. That's why verse 15 hits like a ton of bricks. Jesus says to the Pharisees who despise Jesus' teaching about spiritual life being connected to wealth and vice versa, they despise that teaching and he says to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. This group of men that lived one way in view of the temple and a completely different way in view of the bank. They thought they were justified because they lived their life of mammon according to the rules of mammon. And they kept the law of Moses over here with their sacrifices. And they did not see the convergence of the two. That's why faithful living with our mammon has to be according to the values of God over and above the values of this world, right? So in some ways, that means we're going to be despised. Whether you're ready to retire higher on the hog or you're depending on Social Security, one way or another, you will live in a way that's despised by the world as they live according to the rules of mammon. Something about your material handling should be looked at by the world as stupid, foolish. For some of us, that's helping other people with our money. You're stupid. For some of us, it's giving to ministry work. You're stupid. Right? For some of us, it's actually having a line item in the budget for buying people gifts. You're stupid. Whatever it is. And you can do those things no matter the dollar amounts you're dealing with. You can honor God in those ways. They live their lives in that duplicit, duplicitous ways, thinking that money handling and spiritual matters 
are incompatible. And Jesus says with this parable, loud and clear, no, 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 no. The way you handle your mammon, the way you deal with your possessions has significant bearing on your spiritual life. They're connected. They're absolutely connected. They're woven together in a way that creates a holistic life that integrates our worldly possessions as part of, not as separate from, our spiritual life. They're connected. They're connected in a way that reflects the wisdom of God and the wisdom of our eternal home in his kingdom. Luke 16, Jesus calls us to be more shrewd with the way we live, right? To be mindful of eternity and the operating principles of the kingdom of heaven while we go about our everyday lives, while we go about making decisions about our possessions and time and money, right? This parable Jesus gives us to say, if worldly people are paying extremely careful attention to the operating principles of wealth in this world, if worldly people are, are paying very close attention on how to work the system of this world, like the manager, if they're really, really shrewd in making sure to work the system for their advantage, if that's what worldly people are doing with worldly wealth that will end, how much more should we be paying very, very careful attention to the way the kingdom of heaven operates? How much more should we be extremely vigilant in dealing with the stuff of life in a way that honors God? Right? Jesus is saying worldly people are, are paying closer attention sometimes than we are. They're, they're working harder sometimes to work according to the world's principles than we are working according to the principles of heaven. Jesus says let's pay attention to what has more significance to what has greater weight, and that is the kingdom of heaven. And that everything that we do with what we have now is connected to that kingdom. Let's be faithful with it in a way that God calls faithful and steward it well. Why? Because it reflects our love. Really, it comes down to the fact that it reflects our heart. So that's why it's a tough evaluation, because we're evaluating our heart when we look at all this mammon, right? It's a gut punch, um, and it can be quite a test. But Jesus, and we're going to get into it more in the next parable because they're related, Jesus helps us to see in very clear ways that when we look at this world and evaluate people, we can often do it in the wrong way, right? We can even evaluate our own selves in the wrong way. Let's evaluate ourselves according to eternal significance, Let's evaluate whether it's wealth or poverty, whether it's opportunity or lack thereof. Where, wherever we're at on the spectrum of mammon, let's evaluate that there's greater spiritual things at work and that God wants to pull us gradually and continually into seeing the world rightly, seeing the world the way that he sees it because we cannot serve mammon and serve God. It's one or another. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, today is just a lot. And I don't know if these lessons are easier for cultures where money is different than it is here. It seems like money has been the same in all sorts of cultures, whether it's really, really wealthy cultures like ours or, or, or more poor cultures that are elsewhere in the world and even in other times and places. Money has such 
a power to it. Possessions have such a draw to them. These, these earthly riches, they, they say so much in this world, and yet you're, you're helping us see that they say so much about eternity. And in some ways, that's, that's really daunting and, and even a little convicting, definitely challenging. And I pray, God, that as we do look at it, maybe it's this week, maybe it's with a new effort over the months to come, or maybe it's something we've done and we've done well. Wherever it is on the spectrum we lie, God, I pray that we would not fall into the trap where we think, if I do my money right, then I get to heaven. But rather, we would fall into the truth that says, when my heart is after God, then my possessions will follow. God, bring us into that truth. Capture our hearts with the riches of heaven given at Jesus' expense given to us, though we were poor. Help us to see how that transforms our hearts to be people who do different things with the stuff you've entrusted us with. God, it's a complex lesson. It can be very troubling, but Lord, I pray that you would just help us rest in the truth that you are for us, that you are with us, that you are in us, and that you are transforming us into the likeness and the image of Jesus. God, we pray all these things for your glory and our joy. In Christ's name, amen.